Good morning, church family. It's a joy to welcome you this morning in the name of the Lord. And uh, my name is Brian Jones. If you don't know me already, I'm the pastor of discipleship here at Oak Park. Here at Oak Park, our purpose is to love Jesus, love people, and help people love Jesus. We're happy that you're here with us this morning. If you want more information about our church, uh, you can go to oakparkbaptist.com slash connect. Find out some more about us. Uh, I want to invite you, if you have any prayer needs or any other needs, or if you want to just make sure that you're receiving our regular communication, uh, visit our website, oakparkbaptist.com, and click on Stay Connected, and that'll ensure that you get our uh, communication from us. Um, we also do have two announcements this morning. Um, with our regular discipleship classes kind of on hiatus right now, we're beginning a live stream of a new discipleship class on Wednesday nights at 6.30, and uh, I'm happy for you guys to join us for that. I'm going to be teaching through the book of Philippians, and I trust this will just be a sweet time uh, of finding joy in God and being encouraged in one another. Uh, so be sure to join in. It's the same channel that you're on now on YouTube. Secondly, with spring break, I mean spring break, uh, being over now, our children and youth ministries are, uh, are going to be starting back, but they're starting back online. And so look for information on our uh, rooted service. I'm going to be sending out an email uh, this uh, early this week, and uh, that rooted service is going to be on uh, posted on Facebook, on our Oak Park Kids Facebook page. And then uh, also look for information for our student ministry. The dispersion is going to be live streamed on Wednesday nights at 7.30 p.m. So if you would, let's stand for our call to worship, which is coming from Psalm 56 this morning. The psalmist says, in God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can man do to me? I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you've delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from, from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. Let's offer to God thanks and praise that he is worthy of for delivering our souls from death. Let's praise his name together as we cast our minds to the cross. Jesus bled and died for me. I see his wounds, his hands, his feet. My Savior on that cursed tree. His body down and drenched in tears. They laid him down. Joseph's tomb, the entrance by heavy stone, Messiah still and all alone. Let's praise his name together. Oh, praise the Oh, praise His name forever. 
blazing sun shall pierce the night, and I will rise among the saints, my gaze transfixed on Jesus'
Good morning, church family, and those who are joining in with us via the live stream. We're glad to have you join. If you're if you're experiencing anything like me and my household were at this point of the service last Sunday, I had one child trying to do her ballerina routines and another child dressed up as Iron Man, but I'm hoping that you're keeping it together in some sense and being able to join with us in our time of worship and uh, with minimal distractions, but we know how difficult it might be. Uh, If you would, let's open up our Bibles to James chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 18. But as you're turning in your copy of God's Word, I want to draw your attention to the weekly email that we sent out last week. Uh, And in that email, there was a video link to uh, uh, the Annie Armstrong mission offering, and particularly highlighting the ministry being done in Pittsburgh the ministry that Pastor Joshua has been a part of. And there's he's really a, a part of a greater uh, work that's being done throughout the whole city. And so I, I want to point your attention to that if you didn't already watch that, um, because we'll be giving to that Annie Armstrong uh, offering next Sunday. Uh, and our goal is 15000 to help uh, with supporting the work of gospel proclamation and church planting in, the nor- in North America. If you're a guest this morning and maybe you're tuning in just a little bit late and you missed our welcome time, I want to invite you to go to oakparkbaptist.com. And there on that front page, you'll see a Stay Connected button. We ask that you would click that, fill out that Connect card, and that way we can take a record of your attendance, um, keep you in the loop with our communication that's going out, but it also allows you to list any prayer requests you have or needs you may have that we as a church might be able to come alongside and meet Church family, at this time, we typically take our offering. 
um, but we're not here to collect it in person. And so I want to remind you uh, that we still want to be faithful in our giving to the Lord as he has given to us. And we know that these are trying times. And, and for some of you, that may look a little bit different. Uh, but we encourage you to continue to give as the Lord has provided. You can do that through our, our website online. Again, on the front page, there's a give button that you can click. You can also mail in your offering uh, here at the church, or you can drop it off uh, during our uh, office hours on Tuesday and Thursday morning. With that being said, hopefully you've had time to get to James chapter 1. And so I invite you, and hopefully you're still standing in your home, to remain standing as we read God's Word. James writes, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion. That brings a whole new meaning for us, doesn't it? Greetings. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation, and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. May God bless the reading of his word, and I invite you to sit down in your homes and join me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Differently, Father, we do want to praise you and honor you and confess and adore you that you are good, that every good thing that we have in this life, it comes from you, for you are the Father of lights, and you do not change. You, you are the one who does not tempt, for even you cannot be tempted with evil because you are wholly good. You are light, and there is no darkness in you at all. And so you invite us, even when we're in times like this, to seek you out, to, to ask for wisdom from above, to trust you, knowing that you are testing our faith. 
that you're refining our faith. You're, you're causing us to exercise the muscles of our faith so that we may be steadfast. And being steadfast, we will one day receive the promise crown of life. And so, God, we thank you, our Father, for your goodness toward us. Thank you, God, for your promise of eternal life that is laid up for us, that is secured by your Son on the cross, and we have received the down payment of your Holy Spirit who has been given to us. We pray, Lord, as we are now the dispersion, as we are dispersed throughout southern Indiana, watching via our television screens, our iPhones and tablets, Lord, we pray for grace in this moment. We pray that though we are physically apart, we'd be united in spirit. We'd be present in spirit. And Lord, I pray for grace for every one of us who's enduring this time of trial and isolation. Lord, I pray that you would protect us uh, from this virus. Lord, I pray that you would um, ease our fears, bring comfort to our souls. Lord, use us as instruments of your grace in one another's lives to to make grocery runs, to check on one another, to to send notes and texts and calls of encouragement. Lord, we need grace in this hour, and we know that the well of grace never runs dry with you. Lord, I pray for rolling fields this morning as Jacob Heifert is preaching. And Lord, as they are already going through a difficult time now, having to manage this crisis, Lord, I pray that your grace will be sufficient for them. And Lord, that as they hear the word taught and the word preached, Lord, that you would feed their souls, that they would find comfort in you and the God of all comfort. And then, Lord, I pray that you would use this crisis to strengthen our faith. Lord, that you would accomplish your good purposes in us. And Lord, that you would preserve us and keep us. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your love. And we thank you that you have given us the means to even uh, participate in the worship service like this. Lord, may you be pleased. May our worship be honoring to you. May it be a sweet fragrance to your smell as we offer up our songs, our prayers of praise. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen. we continue in a spirit of prayer, I want to invite you to stand and as well as offer this time to search your own soul, to confess and repent sin and put your hope in God. Lord, from sorrows deep and cold, bring my hope be shaken, and ruined from
Is Jesus my redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom. My steadfast love, my deep and boundless need. To this I hope, my hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to me. Oh, how sweet and divine I can sing. All is mine, yet not I, but you Christ. 
we do thank you and praise you, Lord, for you are our redeemer, our rock, our salvation, our refuge and strength, the very present help in time of need. And you are going to renew these days. And so we put our hope in you, knowing that we shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. Father, I pray for our hearts, our minds to be open that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things from out of your law this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated in your homes, on your couch, on your floor, wherever you may be. And I invite you to open up your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. And I'm going to be reading the first 13 verses, although I'll be covering the entire chapter. But we'll limit our time to the first 13 verses. And again, while you're turning there, if you've just now tuned in, I encourage you to visit our website at oakparkbaptist.com uh, and click the Stay Connected button. Uh, we really do want to hear from you and know how we can serve you. Uh, and that's the only way we can know uh, if you have, uh, in a sense, attended this morning. So uh, if you haven't done that already, we encourage you to do so. I hope you made your way to Genesis chapter 3. It's the first book of the Bible. And we will be starting our series uh, here. In fact, I'm going to do two sermons out of Genesis, and then the last two sermons of the series are the book of Revelation. And so uh, uh, we will begin here at the beginning of all things. Listen to what Moses writes in Genesis chapter 3. He says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who also was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. What we've just read here is the saddest story in the history of the world. 
Now, on hearing me say that, that this is the saddest story of the world, maybe you would beg to differ. Maybe you disagree with me and say, no, Chase, I have many other stories that are sadder than this one. Maybe you could tell me of those that you have heard or maybe those that you have yourself experienced. Stories that contain greater tragedy and sorrow than maybe this one. And you could share stories of the loss of loved ones. Maybe the the illness, the heartbreak of illness and sickness, the devastation of, of war, genocide, catastrophes from hurricanes, tornadoes, tsunamis. And while you, you could be able to share some stories that, that may more readily bring tears to our eyes, put a lump in our throat, cause us to lose our appetite, but what I want to tell you is that this story is the cause of every sad story that ever will be. It is the beginning of sadness in the world. And right now, we all know we are in the middle of a new story, a new chapter in the story, if you will, a sad story. And in this case, with the outbreak of COVID-19, I was checking this morning on the, uh, um, I guess, the, 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 the tracking services of, of where this virus is and the number of of those infected and the number of deaths. And as of this morning, there are 31,000 deaths worldwide. Over 2,000 of those are in the U.S. and it seems to be climbing every day. And if we just think about this, this is all coming from a microscopic virus, something that we cannot see with the naked eye. And this virus, it's a parasite. It's a parasite which is invading our body, invades our cells, and it stealthily borrows our cells' biochemistry to duplicate itself within us and cause severe damage, and in this case, respiratory damage. And essentially, the entire world is up in arms about this, has been placed on hold in isolation Rules are are galore keeping us at home because the world is in fear. Because there is something we cannot see and we cannot control. And it's in devastating situations like the one we are in, especially when they affect our own lives or they affect the the lives of our loved ones, where we may begin to, to ask the question, where is God? Where is he? Why why is God allowing things like coronavirus to happen? Maybe this is a question you've asked before as you've endured a trial or gone through some sort of suffering. Or, Or maybe this is a question that someone has asked you who's going through a trial. Or it's a question that as this has been going on that that has come to your mind or brought to your attention. And so the question is, how, how do we respond? How do we respond when trouble strikes, when evil threatens us? And oftentimes, as believers, we comfort ourselves knowing that God is in control. But when we begin to think about that fact that God is in control of all things, that, that raises another question. If he's really in control, then why doesn't he just stop it? Why does he let this happen? And then you begin to think maybe just a little bit more. Well, 
Well, if he doesn't stop it, can we trust that God is really good? That he truly loves us? Or maybe you begin to think, no, God's really good, but, but maybe he's not really in control. Maybe he can't stop it. If you're a student of the Scripture and been walking with the Lord for any amount of time, you know that both of these answers are insufficient. The Scripture presents God to us as both almighty and good. But we must admit that when difficulty comes, it's, it's hard to trust God in the storm, isn't it? And, and usually when we're in the storm, one of those two characteristics, we begin to doubt. We doubt His goodness, or we doubt His sovereignty and His power. It's difficult when you're hurting to believe God cares for me. It is. It's hard. Or it's difficult to believe when he, that He's in control when you see the world or your life seemingly unravel. And this, brothers and sisters, is why we must have a solid foundation. We must have a, a solid foundation to stand upon, to lay hold of, before the storm strikes. We need to have tangible truths, if you will, things that we can hold on to, truths about who God is, so that we may find true and lasting comfort for our souls. And really, that's the, that's the aim of what I, I want to do over the next four weeks. I want to take four weeks to address what the Bible says about suffering, and particularly evil. Suffering comes from evil. And I want us to look at what the Bible says about evil so that we, we don't lose hope. We don't lose faith when trouble strikes. To put it positively, what I'm going after, as I hope that we will find in the Scripture, is how to find comfort, our only comfort, in the goodness of God, the sovereignty of God, the redemption of God, and the glory of God, even in the midst of suffering. And so beginning this morning, I want to point us to our only comfort in life, in death. I want to point us to God the Father, Almighty, Maker of heaven and earth. I want us to lay hold of His supreme goodness, His beauty, His love, even while we see what we call natural evil around us with coronavirus. We see this evil threatening us. Today, I want us to lay hold of the goodness of God. We'll, we'll pick up on those other elements in the coming weeks. But in order to do this this morning, we must turn to the beginning of the story and consider what I'm calling the origin of evil. Because only by understanding what evil is and where it comes from will we be able to trust that God is good. And so to this end, I want us to consider four aspects of evil this morning from Genesis chapter 3. And here they are. Number one, the enigma of evil. Two, the entrance of evil. Three, the effects of evil. And four, the expiration 
of evil. Now, when we think of evil, we must admit that it is an enigma to us. It's a mystery. It's puzzling. It's elusive to our understanding. And as we've come to this text this morning, we're tipped off uh, to that nature, to that mysteriousness of evil. Paul calls it the, the mystery of lawlessness. We're tipped off here in verse 1 because we're introduced into something very strange. Did you catch it when I read? Moses says, now the serpent. That's all I want to, to note right now. We're introduced to another creature, one that God has made, but the serpent. And here we're introduced, if, if we, we bring in the rest of the story, post-Genesis 3, we know who this serpent is, don't we? He's as John identifies him as the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Elsewhere, he's, he's identified as the evil one, the prince of the power of the age, the ruler of this age. And so immediately, we realize something as we started Genesis 1. There's more to the story than where we're picking up, right? We're picking up midway through the story, at least if we're, we're trying to understand where evil has come from. And so what we know is that in some level, and this in and of itself is rather uh, mysterious and puzzling, is that prior to the fall of humanity, there had already been a rebellion by Satan and a host of angels in heaven. So as odd as it may seem, where has evil originated? It's originated in heaven. But the Scripture hardly tells us much about it. And we don't have really any room to speculate of how it occurred. We just know that it has. And as we start this story, we're seeing that we're starting midway through um, at least what God wants us to know about evil. And so what we've alluded to here, or what is alluded to here in verse 1, is that prior to the fall of humanity, there was an angelic fall and a rebellion of the heavenly host led by Satan himself. However, God in his wisdom, this is what I want you to hear, God in his wisdom, he hasn't given us further insight into this. But what he has given is sufficient for us to trust him, and to know Him, and to know that He is Almighty God and good. And so as we're introduced here to our, our, our nemesis, if you will, we're still left with a question about the nature of evil. Yes, it's mysterious, but, but what is evil? Yes, Satan is, is called the evil one, but evil is not Satan. Rather, Satan has been overcome by evil. And so the question that I want us to ask this morning is, is what is evil? Have you ever thought about that? What is evil? What is what, what theologians call moral evil? We call, often call it sin. What is this? What is it? Well, it's important for us to understand that it, it is a mystery. It's an enigma. 
we don't actually have the full mental capacity, the categories in our brain to, to actually fully comprehend what evil is. And that's why I'm calling it an enigma. It's a mystery in some level. This past week, my wife and I were sitting in the living room and our, our, our youngest daughter, Lillian, she's four years old, she began to um, just kind of reiterate what she was observing in the world. And, and what she's observing is that things are not normal. And she said, Mommy, Daddy, when things get normal, uh, can we go back to ballet? When things get normal, can we go back to church? And then she said, why, why aren't things normal? To which we began to explain to her, well, there's a virus that is making people sick and everyone's staying at home so they don't get the virus. And then immediately she looks at us puzzled and she goes, what's a virus? And if you can imagine, Sarah and I looked at each other. We didn't even have to say anything. It was just like, all right, how are we going to explain this to a four-year-old? What a virus is. She doesn't have the categories. She, she doesn't understand the world. Uh, she has limited development at this point. And so what we had to do is begin to explain the virus based on what she already knows, what she's seen. Well, people get sick. And we began to remind her, you remember when, when some of your siblings and even you had the flu just a couple of months ago? Well, this is what viruses do. And, and we began to explain it based on what she already knew, fully realizing that we weren't explaining to the full extent what a virus was. But what we were doing was sufficient for her. Well, in a similar way, we're like Lillian. We're like my little girl this morning. We are treading into deep territory, things um, which are, are mysterious, in which no Christian has been able to untangle and fully describe. And so I am under no illusion that I'm going to somehow do it this morning. But I, but I do think we can look at what God has given us. And while limited, while condescended to us, while by analogy, like we speak to our child, so God is speaking to us, and what He says is true, it is accurate, it's just not exhaustive for us. But that doesn't mean that we can't explain it at all. And so what I want to do, at least for the rest of my time on this first point, is, is give a summary of how Christian thinkers for, from the beginning of Christianity have sought to take the Scripture and answer this question, what is evil? And so to begin with, Christians have understood that evil is actually nothing in and of itself. Now, you need to be careful and listen to what I mean by that. When I mean nothing, I'm not saying it's an illusion, that it, it isn't real. That's what Buddhism actually teaches. No, evil is real, but it's nothing. It has no being in and of itself. Rather, it's not a substance. It's not a power or, or force, if you will. And so we need to not think of it in terms of Star Wars, if, uh, where, where there is a, a force, all-abiding force that can be divided by the light side and the good side, and they're equally um, balancing one another like the yin and the yang. That's not what we need to understand about evil. Evil, however, is nothing in and of itself and can only be defined in contrast to what is good. 
That's important for you to understand. Evil is nothing by itself and can only be understood. It can only be defined in contrast to what is good. And this is why the Scriptures say, Paul says this in Romans 5.13, where there is no law, there is no sin. Where there is no law, there is no sin. Scriptures often refer to evil this way, unrighteousness, comparing it to righteousness, Uh, ungodliness, comparing it to godliness. It's not godliness. Or lawlessness, it is disobedient to God's good word. The Scripture doesn't give us a definition of evil, it just contrasts it with its what it's not. It's not good, if you will. And so how can that be? How can there, as Paul says, where there's no law, there is no sin? Because evil can only exist in connection to what is good. Evil can only exist in connection to what is good. So you begin to see, oh, these aren't balancing powers. Evil is dependent upon good. Good is not dependent upon evil. So let me try to explain this just a little bit more. Another way of understanding it is that evil is the corruption of what is good. It's like a parasite, believe it or not. What a good analogy uh, for us as we are battling a virus. It's like a parasite. And parasites cannot exist on their own, but they live on a host. They live on that which is good. This is what C.S. Lewis um, attempts to describe evil this way. Evil is spoiled goodness. Evil is spoiled goodness. And he goes on and gives several analogies. It's like a rotten apple, a ruined house, a wicked soul, a divided community. Now, all those things are good in and of themselves. The apple, the soul, the house, the community, those are good. And they can stand on their own. But the corruption needs the good to corrupt. Cannot corrupt itself. Now you might be beginning to say, okay, why is this important? Why is it important to understand that evil can only be determined or defined in light of what is good? Because in chapter 1 of Genesis, five times God looks at his creation and what does he say about it? It is good. And after he creates Adam and Eve, humanity, he looks at them and he says, it was very good. Brothers and sisters, God can only create what is good because he creates out of his nature and who he is, and he is wholly good. And so this is what I want you to see this morning. God cannot be the author of evil. There are things that God cannot do, and He cannot create evil. That's what James said in our pastoral reading this morning, didn't he? God doesn't tempt anyone. Why? Because He can't be tempted with evil. And so this is why the Bible describes God as light, doesn't it? God is light, John says, and in Him is no darkness at all. Now just think about that analogy for a minute. If you have a light, 
You turn on the light. You got a, 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 a flashlight in your hand. No matter how hard you try with that light, you can't create darkness with it, can you? You can't. In the same way as God shines light, as by His Word He spoke the world into being, it is like shining the light and creating. It can only create light, that which is good. And so God cannot create evil. So you might ask, well, where's darkness come from then? Where's darkness? Well, like evil, it's nothing in and of itself. But it is the absence of something. In this case, it's the absence of light. In the same way you might think of it in the relationship to heat and cold. What is the cold? It's the absence of heat. Heat can't create cold. Evil is spoiled goodness. You might be saying, all right, my head is exploding. Yes, I know, it's an enigma. But these are the ways we can speak of it while honoring what the Scripture has told us. But, but this is important for us. When the corruption of what is good occurs, this is when evil takes shape. And we can point it out, that's evil. This is when it takes shape and its effects become real and devastating. And this is what took place in the fall with the entrance of evil into this world. While evil remains an enigma to us, we see it enter our world and infect humanity here in verses 1 through 7. And so we're, we're seeing the entrance of humanity. Satan is disguised as a snake, and he tempts Eve. God doesn't do that. Satan does that. And yes, I know there's a... a a mystery around this. But this is where we pick up in the story. And so temptation for Adam and Eve begins outside of them, which that will be different for us, as James will tell us. Because Adam and Eve don't have a sin nature. But sin, temptation, is coming outside of them. In this case, it's coming through the great deceiver. And so you can see here that evil is taken a form. It's taken a shape. It's corrupted one of God's good and beautiful creatures, an angelic being, as we know, is Satan. And this evil one now is calling into question God's good command. What's he doing? He's corrupting what is good. And he begins to place a seed of doubt in Eve's mind, asking her, did God really say, He's starting to, to, to crumble the goodness, spoil the goodness of God's Word, if you will. And he places the seed of doubt, and he says, did God really say you can't eat of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil? And of course, Eve replies and says, yes, God has forbidden us from eating that tree. But you not, might have noticed there that she adds a command. And she says, and cannot touch it. God actually didn't say that which I think there is some wisdom here because later in Deuteronomy and throughout the Scriptures, we are warned against adding to God's commands. And, and sometimes we as believers think if we go beyond what God commands, we'll be safer. But we're seeing that that's not safe. We want to live in the goodness of God's commands. But Eve nevertheless says, no, we cannot eat it lest we will die. Satan follows up with to her. 
and he explicitly contradicts God's word. He says, you will not surely die. And if you look back in Genesis 2, verse 17, God says, you will surely die. Satan just put the negative in front of it. He contradicts what God's good, loving rule said. And he goes on, and and he doesn't just leave it there. He says, this is why you won't die. Because God is a liar. That's what he tells Eve. Satan tempts her by, by now questioning not only God's word, but God's character. He begins to present to her a God who is stingy, mean-spirited, and an oppressor. Isn't that how temptation works in our life as well? Well, we'll see that it comes from within. Nevertheless, it's the same type of temptation. We, We somehow begin to believe that God is holding back. God is holding out on us. And we believe, maybe not explicitly, but implicitly, well, maybe God isn't good. God doesn't have my best interest in mind. And therefore, we begin to take matters into our own hands. That's when sin is birthed in us. That's what has occurred with Eve. Now, what does Satan offer her? What what is going on here? What does it mean by um, having your eyes open, knowing good and evil? What Satan's offering her, and what at least Eve thinks she's attaining is personal autonomy, independence, self-determination of her, get this, own happiness. That's the root of all sin. I'm going to determine my own happiness. This is what Augustine said. He's a well-known Christian in the 5th century. He notes that as God's good creatures... We always seek what is good. But sin is the obtaining of the good through evil means. Think about that for a minute. Because we're made in God's image, we always long for good. The thief doesn't steal what's bad. He steals what's good. We long for things. Even the murderer is longing for justice or some satisfaction of goodness. They're just approaching it through through evil means. Well, we see this happen as Eve looks upon the tree in verse 6. And what does she do? She sees it, and it is good for food. It's a delight to her eyes, and she sees that it is to be desired to make her what? To make her wise. These are all good things in and of themselves. Yet what is it that Eve desires? What is she after? Well, it tells us. She wants to be wise. She wants the wisdom of God. Later we'll find out that that the knowledge of of good and evil, which I think is rightly understood, the ability to discern and call what is good and what good and evil evil, is God's prerogative, but she wants to know the wisdom of God, and she's been tempted to get it by disobeying God. Think about that passage in James now. 
James tells us that God doesn't tempt anyone. Now, can you see this? Satan is the tempter. But we're tempted, James says, 1, 14 through 15, when we're lured and enticed by our own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. Now, what is he talking about? What does he mean? This doesn't mean that all desire is evil, although I would say our, our desires are, are, can, are corrupted. We're more susceptible to evil desires than Adam and Eve were, which makes this more mind-boggling for how did Adam and Eve rebel? But our temptation comes from within. We're already tainted. Sin has already entered our heart. It doesn't mean that all our desires are evil, but it does mean that sin occurs when our desires overcome us in such a way that we will disobey to get what we want. They grip us in that way. And then evil takes shape, it takes form, and we corrupt what is good. Well, we know the rest of the story. Eve takes the fruit, she eats, and then she gives it to Adam, and he takes the fruit, and he eats. And it is in this act of defiance whereby evil takes root within their hearts. It's at this moment that evil now enters the human nature. Adam and Eve, the, the pinnacle of God's creation, created without a sin nature. They didn't have, they were good. Adam and Eve, perfectly made in the image and likeness of God, do the unthinkable. They willfully rebel against their good and loving Creator. What we see here is absolute insanity. This is irrational. I can't get my mind around how could this have happened? And yet it did. Evil has come into the world, brothers and sisters, through demonic temptation and human rebellion. That's where it comes from. That's how it's entered the world. And so what is it? What is evil? It's the corruption of what is good. Where did it come from? It's come from demonic solicitation and human rebellion. And so just as God said in Genesis 2.17, the day you eat of that fruit, the day you rebel, you will surely die. The wages of sin is death, brothers and sisters. And that's what we see happening in our world. And so this leads us to the effects of evil. As we think of the effects, I want you to keep in mind, again, that God's the Creator. But he's not the creator and author and sustainer of evil. That's what the story is telling us. Evil is the corruption of all that is good. And because evil, or sin as we often call it, has entered the world, it has spoiled God's good creation. Everything that God created was good. Now evil has entered, sin has entered the world, and it has cursed the world. It has broken the world. It has spoiled the world. It has corrupted the world in which we live. And so this world is now broken. It does not function as God intended it to, as he left it in Genesis chapter 2. 
And I want you to see five ways that our world is broken, has been corrupted. And, and this really encompasses the rest of chapter 3. And we're not going to read those verses, but I'm just going to point out things to your attention. First of all, sin or evil has corrupted our souls. It's corrupted our nature, resulting in real guilt and shame. You see, the moment that Adam and Eve took of the fruit of the tree and, their, and they ate, their eyes were open. They did have now a knowledge of good and evil, but it brought with it great shame and great guilt. They lost everything else that they had. They never experienced this before. There was another side to that rotten apple. They, they, they thought it was good, but it was rotten. And now sin has entered their heart. And this is why, brothers and sisters, there are things in our life that we will not tell anybody because it is too much guilt, too much shame. And we go into the dark places to hide because as Jesus says, our deeds are evil. It's corrupted us, given us a sin nature. And so after the fall, brothers and sisters, there is a sense we, we aren't like Adam and Eve in this sense. Adam and Eve were not born with a disposition to sin, which is mind-boggling that they did. But we are born with a disposition to sin. The temptations we give in way easier. And it affects everything. Everything is tainted. Everything is corrupted at some point. Even our souls, our heart. Two, evil has corrupted our relationships, resulting in unending conflict with people. And God begins to explain that to Adam and Eve. He says to, to, to Eve that her desire shall be contrary to her husband and he will rule over you. That same word shall be contrary to you is, 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 is mentioned again in uh, the story of Cain and Abel, and that sin is contrary, that it, that it goes against you. It wants to rule over you. Our relationships are broken. Maybe you're feeling that now being quarantined with, with everybody. Hey, you love them, but hey, I, I like a little bit more space. And you're beginning to see this corruption. Yes, family is good. Relationships are great till they're not, right? And there's nothing we can do. Some, we're all contributors. And the more people you got, the more corruption you've got. And there is always conflict between people, jealousy, rivalry. Third, evil has corrupted our world, resulting in what, what we call natural evil. Natural evil. Natural evil inc includes rogue viruses. Viruses that, um, at the very least, have turned against humanity, and they, they kill us, they afflict us. Sickness and disease occur. Earthquakes, tornadoes, hurricanes, tsunamis. All these things are corruptions of what is good. It's also corrupted the spiritual realm, which is where we began as, as a mysterious thing to us. It's a realm that we cannot see, 
but we, we do see that it has an impact on us. And so evil has corrupted the spiritual realm, which results in a spiritual warfare, a demonic affliction upon humanity. And when Jesus shows up on the scene, we begin to see, oh, there's more that meets the eye. That some physical ailments are caused by demonic affliction. Wars, Daniel seems to suggest, are, are caused by demonic conflict. And there's a mystery there to us. But at some factor, these, these spiritual beings are able to wreak havoc on this world. And then lastly, evil has corrupted our relationship with God, resulting in our hostility toward Him. It's not just that we have a disposition toward evil, we have a disposition to run away from God. You see that in Adam and Eve, right? God, notice He's the seeker, He's good in this story. Every element of who God is is good here. All evil is happening with two other players, Satan and humanity. But God seeks out. Man runs away. Nevertheless, though, because we are now evil, evil has corrupted our hearts, our souls, our minds. And God is light, and no darkness can dwell among him. He, he cannot look positively upon evil because the Scripture tells us God hates evil. Hates it with a perfect hatred. We can no longer stand in His presence. And so you see at the end of chapter 3 that God drove out the man, verse 24. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, He placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard to the way of the tree of life. We've been banished from the presence of God. And so sometimes when trouble strikes, when evil occurs, you hear people say, God, why did you do this to me? Why did you do this to me? But as we look here in this passage, this is not God's doing. This is our doing. This is our doing. This is the result of evil having entered the world through our rebellion. And you might say, well, I wasn't there. That was Adam and Eve. Well, guess what? Adam and Eve were a perfect, Adam in particular, was a perfect representative of us. And he didn't have a sin nature and yet fell. You and I would not have stood a chance either. And as a result, sin has come through our rebellion and corrupted everything that God created that was very good. Now, does that mean that everything that bad happens in your life is a direct result of your individual sin? No, not necessarily. That can happen. You sin and there's consequences. But every evil that afflicts you isn't because you've sinned. That could be because somebody else sinned and it could just be the world is broken. But what we see here in Genesis is that God is good. And we have incurred the consequences of evil, sucking the life out of what is good. Now, while this sermon has probably been quite the downer, hasn't it? 
there is a good note for us to end on. Evil has an expiration date. Evil has an expiration date. Despite our rebellion to God's good and loving rule over us, and the consequences as devastating as they are, which have occurred, what I want you to see here, God still has good in mind for you. And He promises to put an end to evil forever. And we see this uh, hinted at in, in verse 15. When God curses the serpent. Now notice, God curses the serpent, God curses the ground, but He doesn't curse us. He doesn't curse us. God's good to us. He's gracious to us. He's merciful to us. That doesn't mean we don't have a sin nature. But He loves us. He has a plan for us. So God curses the serpent, and God, in that curse, makes a promise in verse 15, a promise that a child will come from the woman. He's not done with us. There will be an offspring, and this offspring, he tells Satan, will deal a death blow to his head. And and get this, brothers and sisters, the tempter will be gone when this child comes. But more than that, we see that through Adam, or though Adam and Eve were thrown out of the garden and the presence of God, what does God do? Yes, there's consequences for our sin, but what does God do? He covers their nakedness. Verse 21. God covers their guilt and their shame by shedding the blood of another. Now, who's this other? It appears to be a beast of the field. We don't know. Maybe it was a lamb. And here in this passage, we learn something about our God in light of this fall. We learn something about our God's good, wise, awesome, mind-boggling plan of redemption. God, out of His infinite wisdom, power, and glory, get this, brothers and sisters, is going to bring life out of death. That's what He's showing us here. And the rest of the Bible unpacks. God's plan, though evil has corrupted and brought forth death, and death has spread to all men because all men have sinned, He is going to bring through one man righteousness and peace. And He is going to do that by bringing life out of death. In fact, this offspring will come not only to conquer the tempter, but through the shedding of His own blood. He will give His life to us. Paul says of Adam, he was a living being. But of Jesus, the second Adam, he is a life-giving being. He is a greater Adam. He is able to conquer death, conquer evil for us, cover us with his blood, give us his righteousness. And he will do so and he will wash all our guilt and shame away and he will clothe us in our righteousness that will never be lost. And as we wear the righteousness of Christ, we will be able to enter God's presence and dwell with him forever and ever. Brothers and sisters, how does a parasite die? 
How does a parasite die? It dies with the host. It dies with the host. I want you to think about this for a moment. Jesus took on our human nature so that he could identify with us as sinners, die for us, be raised again for our justification, so that through faith in him, we would die to sin and its grip upon us and be raised to newness of life, never to be subject to evil again. Evil does not have reign over God. And in His good plan, He will take us through our great enemy's judgment of death, and He will bring us through it, and evil will die with it. This is the goodness of our great God. Do you see that? This is the goodness of our Father and Maker of heaven and earth. And because he's good and he has a good plan of redemption, evil does not have God's hands tied. God is not wringing his hands wondering what he's going to do because evil has spoiled his plans. And so in the coming weeks, next Sunday, we're going to see how God is able to make good on his promise as we consider evil's limits and the sovereignty of God. Then on Easter, we're going to see the defeat of evil on the cross of Christ. How evil met its match. And then finally, we will see the banishment of evil, the hope of the kingdom of heaven. And it's my prayer for us, church, as we're going through strange times. We're feeling the effects of the curse upon the ground, upon the earth. We're seeing natural evil take its toll, and, and we see moral evil all around us, and we see it even in our own hearts. That through this time of examining the Scriptures, we will see with fresh eyes that our God is both good, holy, righteous, and awesome. And He is also almighty, powerful, sovereign, God only wise, immortal, invisible. And we will see that because he's good, and because he's all-powerful, he is able, as we pray, deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, yours is the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we see here in the Genesis account that you're good. That evil has no existence apart from the good, but good can exist apart from evil. And Lord, that's where our hope is. That you are light and there's no darkness in you at all. That, that you are good and you can only do what is righteous, good, and godly, and and. and and, and your law and your rule is, is all born and birthed out and spoken out of the character of who you are, and it is life-giving. Lord, you are life. This is eternal life, as Jesus said. 
that we know you. You are the one who sustains us and keeps us and loves us and has a plan for us and a plan to defeat the tempter, a plan to defeat evil. And Jesus, we thank you that you have come and you have sympathized with our weaknesses. You've taken on a human nature like ours and come become obedient to death, even death on a cross. And for this reason, the Father has given you a name which will be exalted above every name. In the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that you are Lord and you will bring us into your glorious kingdom where death will be no more, darkness will be no more, the sea will be no more. Lord, you are good and we confess that. And we want to trust you even as we see evil and corruption around us. Lord, keep us. Let us see that every good thing comes from you and that you do not tempt us. You are not evil toward us. You mean our good. We trust you, Father, through Jesus our Lord. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Now to stand in your homes as we sing an appropriate song. I will wait for you from Psalm 130. Because that's really what we're doing. We're waiting for our good, glorious Savior, to peel back the heavens and rescue us. And he will do that. Let's sing.
receive this benediction this morning as we are dismissed. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Amen. Go in His grace. Thank you.